Hey everyone, Eric Grenier here, and welcome to the 56th episode of the RIT Podcast. This week I thought I'd try something a little different, so I reached out to the founding members of the RIT and other subscribers who have been supporting the site since day one, and I asked them for some questions they'd like to hear answered on the podcast. I got a lot of good ones, running the gamut from federal to provincial and municipal politics, and I'm going to try to tackle all of them. Not by myself, though. I also have a few special guests to lend their expertise and answer some of these questions as well. So let's get right to it. I've separated them into some common themes, and we'll start with federal party politics. Brandon Tang asked, Do you see much future for Justin Trudeau as leader of the Liberal Party? While he has won every election he's been in, there have been claims that the party would benefit from a quote-unquote walk in the snow. Assuming the Liberal NDP deal lasts, Trudeau will have been in power for nearly a decade. Would he stay on for another election? So I, I do have mixed feelings about whether Justin Trudeau will stick around for the next election and whether that's a good idea or not. A lot of that will depend on when the election actually takes place. If it is going to be in 2025, then that does give Justin Trudeau a lot of time to think things over, to give a successor some time to prepare for the next election, for the economy to, to improve, for the situation to maybe get a little bit better. It also gives him time to see how things are going and decide if he wants to stick around for another two, three, four years after the next election. Now, it's hard to win four consecutive elections, but it has been done before. It was done by John A. MacDonald, it was done by Wilfrid Laurier, and it was done by lots of provincial premiers. So federally, we don't have many recent examples of winning four elections in a row by the same prime minister. We have had a party win four elections in a row. The Liberals did between 1993 and uh, 2004. And we saw that during the Pearson, uh, Pierre Trudeau years as well. But it is not an easy thing to do to win four elections because you rack up a lot of baggage over that time. Now, usually four elections might mean, you know, 12, 15, 16 years rather than just 10. But uh, it is still going to be a big challenge, I think, for the Liberals to win the next election. But it doesn't mean that they can't. In terms of Justin Trudeau himself, you know, there does have to be some personal decision there. I mean, if he does want to run again, uh, that means that he could be around for two, three years after the next election. So that's now looking at 2027, 2028. Uh, that's starting to be a long time to be in office and leader of the Liberal Party. He was leader of the Liberal Party since 2013. He was elected uh, as an MP back in 2008. So, you know, he's been around for a long time, despite the fact that um, he doesn't seem to age that much. One other thing that I think is going to be a consideration is is it going to continue to help the Liberal Party if he's still around? He has to make that calculation, and I'm sure he's going to be given help by his advisors and people who can do polling and things like that, because if he's still the best option that's likely to lead the Liberals into the next election, then that's a, a reason for him to stick around. I'm not convinced that there are an obvious uh, winning alternatives waiting in the wings. I know a lot of people talk about Christia Freeland being someone who could replace Justin Trudeau, but... Uh, we haven't really seen her on the campaign uh, hustings. We don't know what kind of campaigner she's going to be. Uh, and other candidates, you know, Mark Carney, I'm not sure that's a good contrast for Pierre Poiliev. Speaking of Pierre Poiliev, for Justin Trudeau, you know, he does have a bit of a competitiveness to him. He does like to defy the odds and to beat people's expectations of him. So if he has the next couple of years where Pierre Poiliev is really getting under his skin, I'd say that almost encourages him to stick around rather than to get out of the way. My gut is really 50-50 on whether he's going to run in the next election. And I think as we get closer to it, if he hasn't backed out, the odds increase that he is not going to. He does need to leave his successor enough time to prepare for the next election. And once we get past next year, uh, that clock is going to start ticking down quite a bit. Sticking on the Justin Trudeau theme, Robert Herzog asked, he was interested in knowing how Justin Trudeau's popularity has changed over time in different parts of the country, and more importantly, why. He's trying to understand why there seems to be uh, antipathy towards Justin Trudeau in some parts of the country and why it is growing and what the Liberals could do to address this. So I went to find a poll that was done, uh, polling that was done by the Angus Reid Institute because they do consistent polling on uh, Justin Trudeau's approval ratings, and they also break it down consistently by province don't always get that with every pollster. So if you compare to what his approval ratings were 
in December 2015 to the last set of polling they did in June and July of this year. Uh, Yes, his approval ratings has gone down quite a bit, down about 30 points in Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba, but that was from about 50 to 60% back at the beginning in the honeymoon phase of his prime ministership. So down 30 points from a relatively low place for a new prime minister. So uh, his approval rating now in those parts of the country, in Western Canada, is quite low. Also down 30 points in places like Newfoundland and Labrador, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick. But that was from the 70 to 80% range. Lots of high expectations for Justin Trudeau in Atlantic Canada. They swept Atlantic Canada in 2015. So they have dropped 30 points, or Trudeau has dropped 30 points in those provinces. But he still has high approval ratings in those provinces because he was starting from a high base. In British Columbia and Quebec, his approval rating has has dropped 25 points, so not nearly as much as in Western Canada. And in Ontario, it's less than 20 points. And what's key for his re-election chances is that Trudeau's approval rating is still around 40% or above 40%, which in a multi-party system can be enough to win an election. He's above that in Newfoundland, Labrador, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Quebec, Ontario, and British Columbia. He can still win at those provinces. So it's why Trudeau is still pretty competitive going into the next election. And in a way, the pandemic helped him quite a bit because during 2019, he had the SNC-Lavalin affair, his approval rating was at an all-time low. After the pandemic or during the pandemic, his approval rating got a big boost throughout the country, including in places where he wasn't popular. But if you look at where the numbers are now, his approval rating in Saskatchewan and Alberta is as low as it was back in 2019. So any kind of goodwill that he might have uh, engendered during the pandemic is gone in those regions, which are also regions that uh, were not really all that keen on a lot of uh, very strict restrictions uh, against the pandemic. His approval rating is still higher in Ontario, Quebec, British Columbia, parts of Atlantic Canada than it was in the trough of 2019. So he has been able to use the pandemic to improve his standing in the places where he still needs to win elections. So that's good news for him. Why did this happen? Well, that's always tougher to answer, especially when relying on polling data. I think for Alberta and Saskatchewan, it's clearly energy issues, pipelines, carbon tax, fact that the governments there in Alberta and Saskatchewan are not in favor and they're constantly contesting whatever the federal government does. That, I think, is a big reason why those areas aren't very pleased with Justin Trudeau. And of course, there's all the baggage from the liberal brand in those regions as well. Atlantic Canada, I think, you know, they're bound to disappoint from soaring highs. When you have 70 or 80 percent of people thinking you're going to do a great job, uh, it doesn't take much to you know, knock people off of those sky-high expectations. Then you get to British Columbia, Quebec, Ontario. I mean, there's the general wear and tear of government. They've been in power now for uh, eight years, or nearly eight years. And, you know, the economy has had some ups and downs. Affordability is a huge issue in Ontario, in British Columbia. The environment is something that is a a top issue for British Columbians, for Quebecers. Uh, So if there's a perception that the Liberals haven't delivered on these things then that's going to sap support for the party and for Justin Trudeau. Uh, There was a poll that was done by Leger relatively recently on what were the top disappointments from the Justin Trudeau government. Integrity and ethics was very high among liberals, New Democrats, conservatives. But among New Democrats, what was also really high was not delivering on promises, things like reconciliation, things like the Trans Mountain Pipeline. So I think that suggests that for people who are currently with the NDP, So on the progressive side, there's a lot of disillusionment with the Liberals not delivering on their promises. And for Liberal voters, for Conservatives who might have been giving Justin Trudeau a chance in 2015, I think the ethical issues uh, have sapped the support. Now, what to do about it? Well, they have the ability to deliver on some things, to deliver on some promises because of their confidence and supply agreement with the New Democrats. They can hope that the economy gets better by 2025 that they can show some progress on the environmental file. And probably what's going to be the most important is that they contrast with a Pierre Poilier of conservative government, which I think is going to uh, be a contrast that they're probably going to have a bit of an easier time making than they did with Aaron O'Toole and Andrew Scheer, leaders who they did defeat in the last couple elections. Ian Van Haren asked, he's wondering why Prime Minister Trudeau has been slow on appointing senators to vacant positions. Are there any possible negative implications of his reluctance to appoint senators? I don't follow the Senate too much. 
Uh, so I decided to ask uh, my friend Aaron Wary, a senior writer at CBC, to give this one a shot. There are at least a couple of issues with leaving seats empty in the upper chamber. For one thing, it means the Senate doesn't have a full complement of senators to do the work it's supposed to be doing. For another, it means that some provinces aren't getting the representation the Constitution says they're supposed to be getting. Now, granted, there probably aren't many Canadians who are losing sleep over that. When most people think about representation, they think about the MPs they elect, not the senators who are appointed by the Prime Minister. But we should probably be careful about treating the institution as a complete afterthought. In the long term, Justin Trudeau should also keep in mind that any seats left vacant could be a gift to any future Conservative Prime Minister who comes to power. Trudeau has tried to establish an independent Senate, and he was helped in that effort by all the vacancies that Stephen Harper left behind. If Trudeau wants to make it difficult for any subsequent government to reverse his changes, he should want to make sure there are as many independents in the Senate as possible whenever the next election occurs. Now, maybe there doesn't seem to be an imminent threat of an election right now, but things can change fast, and if the Liberals were to lose power and leave behind a significant number of vacancies, they might look back on that as a significant missed opportunity. All right, thanks, Aaron. Anthony Ambrogno, he asked, are there ways to measure Pierre Polia's strategy of going around legacy media in Canada? More broadly, are there data in terms of Canadians' engagement with alternative media, podcasts, substacks like The Writ? There's a sense that people are getting more news online, but he's curious what the data is. Uh, that's, you know, I, I tried looking for some information on this. I did find an Ipsos poll that was done in 2021, and it asked, how have you gotten your news in the last month? 48% of Canadians said they got it from broadcast TV. So that's half that aren't getting their news from television anymore. 38% said they were getting it on social media. And that included any social media that people used. 35% on the radio, 24% in print newspapers, and 23% in online-only newspapers. Now, if you looked at it in terms of conservative supporters, conservatives are actually more likely to get their news on TV, newspapers, and on the radio. They were less likely to get it on social media or online-only newspapers. That might seem counterintuitive based on what Pierre Poilievre is trying to do, but it's because conservatives tend to be older. Older people tend to get their news from traditional sources. Pierre Poilievre, though, is not really targeting older voters. He's targeting younger people, trying to bring them into the party, uh, talking about issues about buying a house, not an issue for older people. So his strategy does make sense. He's trying to reach younger people. Younger people are, according to the Ipsos poll, less likely to get their news from TV, are less likely to read newspapers, and more likely to get their news online and on social media. So his strategy does take make sense in terms of going after younger voters. Podcasts, for example, you know, he's done a couple of podcasts. He's on the Jordan Peterson podcast, for example. I found a report that said that 29% of people are listening to podcasts at least monthly. This was in 2021. That's up five points from 2017. And 47%, so half of podcast listeners, or almost half, are under the age of 35. So if Pierre Poilievre is trying to engage a younger base to get them to sign up for the party, to donate to his campaign, uh, and to vote for him, that makes sense. Is it going to make sense in terms of a general election strategy? Well, he's going to have to reach out to voters who traditionally don't get their news in the ways that you know younger people do, because that's the conservative base. He needs to get those older people to go out and vote. Um, and he does need to get the swing voters, which tend to be middle-aged, let's say. Uh, So we'll see if it's going to be a good strategy or not. Banking on younger people to come out to vote usually doesn't pay off very much. Anthony had another question. He said, about a year after the last election, with the Conservatives taking the popular vote but not the government, what are the five federal ridings that the next Conservative leader needs to basically live in to win the seat? Are these seats important because of the need to merge the People's Party vote with the Conservatives, or would the Conservatives be taken from the left to win? Well, let's just look at the five closest ridings where the Conservatives came up short in the last election. And the People's Party was a potential factor in four of them. In Trois-Rivières, the margin between the Bloc and the Conservatives was only about 0.1, 0.2, and the PPC took 1.9. They didn't have a lot of the vote, but the Conservatives didn't need a lot of that vote to move ahead of the Bloc there. Sault Ste. Marie in northern Ontario, again, the margin was about half a percentage point. The PPC had 4.8% of the vote in that riding. Kitchener-Conestoga, the Liberals won by less than a point. The People's Party had 7% of the vote. And Edmonton Centre, the Liberals won by a little bit over a point, and the People's Party had 4% of the vote. So in some of those really tight ridings, getting just a few of those People's Party voters over to the Conservatives would win the Conservatives the seat, assuming all else remains equal. But in terms of winning the next election, that's not going to be enough. The fifth riding 
was Fredericton. There was no People's Party candidate in Fredericton. So that's an example where for the Conservatives to win it, they need to either have supporters of the other party stay home or gain support from Liberals, New Democrats, or Greens. So a different tactic than going after the PPC. If we're just trying to broaden it out in terms of regions, that kind of thing, of the closest 20 ridings, so if the Conservatives had won those 20 ridings, they would have ended up, you know, minority government territory. Six of them are in a triangle that you can form between London, Niagara Falls, and the York region north of Toronto. I think that's going to be the key area for the Conservatives winning seats in the Kitchener area and in um, the northern and western GTA. They already have a lot of the seats in the eastern part. Another five of them were in the Vancouver suburbs and Vancouver Island. So big shock for the Conservatives to win the next election. They need to go to the greater Vancouver area and the greater Toronto area. Anthony had three questions, so we had another one here. He asked, what does the data say about where the Green Party is headed as they reinstate Elizabeth May? I'll put in parentheses, they could reinstate Elizabeth May. Are they gaining support federally and or provincially? Are they stagnant or about to tank? Uh, for this question, I asked a friend of the podcast, Dave Coletto, CEO of Abacus Data, to weigh in. As I look at polling data that Abacus has done over the last number of years as it relates to the Green Party, I think three things stand out that the party should consider. One is um, its support has shrunk over time. Today, we see the party getting about 4% of decided voters. Over the last few years, it's been in a narrow range between 2 and 6%, averaging closer to 4%. Um, that's lower than we've seen for, for much of, you know, the, the 2010 to 2020 uh, time period. Second, those open to voting green, the, the accessible voter pool has shrunk substantially. Today, just 30% of Canadians say they're even open to voting for the Green Party. And when we compare that to 2019, around June, its high watermark was almost close to half of Canadians. That was a time when the Greens formed official opposition in PEI, when they won a seat in Ontario, and there seemed to be a lot of momentum around the Green Party at the provincial level that was carrying forward um, into the federal sphere, especially when climate change and the environment were top issues. But perhaps most important is during the last federal election in the final week of the campaign, we asked respondents, which party and leader do you feel would be best able to handle climate change. And the Green Party and Ms. Paul, the leader at the time, came fourth. Only 15% of Canadians picked the Greens. Now, it's the area they did the best out of any of them, but they trailed the Liberals, the Conservatives, and the New Democrats. And so as the Green Party thinks about its future and how it is going to connect with Canadians, even if Ms. May returns as leader, is, to, in my mind, what does it stand for? How is it distinguished from the other parties? How is it unique? Because for years, when we'd asked the question, which party was best able to handle the environment or climate change, the Greens would often win and win by large margins. That advantage is all but gone. And the other parties have been able to, to incorporate the green agenda, the climate change, the environment into their party's brands and, and policy platforms. And so people are left with the question, why should I vote green? What does the party stand for and how will they be different? That to me is something the Greens need to really consider. I'd also just add to that, and thanks, uh, David, uh, if we're just talking about the provincial parties, you know, the Greens do seem to be in better shape at the provincial level. They had modest progress in Ontario. They almost won that second seat in Perry Sound, Muskoka. If you look at the polls, they are holding their support in New Brunswick, where they hold uh, a couple seats there at the provincial level. And there is a provincial election happening in Prince Edward Island next year. And based on where the polls are, the Greens do have a pretty good shot at holding the official opposition status that they won for the first time in 2019. So a lot of the action for the Green Party might be more at the provincial level than the next couple of years. And success at the provincial level could bode well for the next leader of the federal Green Party. Okay, moving on to more broader issues of national interest. Bill Day, wondering what you think of the idea of making voting mandatory. How do you think this would affect election results. How has it worked out in Australia? Australia has actually had mandatory voting for a long time, and turnout was around 90% in the election that was held earlier this year. It has hovered in the low 90s since 2010. Australia has a relatively small fee that you pay if you don't vote. So in terms of turnout, that seemed to be working pretty well. In terms of what the impact would be, it would increase voting among younger people, among marginalized groups, and they tend to vote left of center. 
right? So this would likely help out um, in this country, the New Democrats, maybe the Liberals, maybe the Greens. The NDP routinely has trouble living up to its polls, and in part that's because they get a lot of support among younger voters who don't go out to vote. But, you know, would this impact be there in the long term? I mean, parties react, parties adapt, right? So if mandatory voting became a thing, the parties would adjust to try to appeal to younger voters, try to appeal to people who they are currently writing off. So we don't know what that impact would be there. In terms of my own view, well, you know, I'm not sure who cares what I think, but I'm not really against it. I I like the idea of um, having higher turnout. And if it was mandatory with, you know, not a onerous penalty, that could be a good idea. Uh, You would need to have the option, of course, to decline or spoil your ballot because you can't force anybody to vote for somebody. Um, But obviously, I think it would be better if we had voluntary ways to increase turnout, ways that were just incentivizing people to go to vote rather than punishing them. Um, But if anyone has any ideas, um, yeah, let Elections Canada know. Jim Weedrick, he asks, would you agree that members of parliament are practically relevant? He's vexed by this development over the last 50 years, but he believes that federal politics as it is, is currently practiced, is a broken, quote, friendly dictatorship run by the PMO. If you agree, how best to fix? If you disagree, where would you differ from my analysis? Remember, there was the uh, commentary during the Cretchen years that it was the benign dictatorship that because they had such a powerful majority Um, and the liberals could do whatever they wanted. And the fact that they were benign, they weren't an authoritarian government, um, was a good fortune for Canada. Um, I don't agree that MPs are irrelevant. They can still play an important role through private members' bills, on committees, uh, through constituency work. They can still have an important role within caucus, uh, behind closed doors, for example. But I, I think the issue is that they've allowed themselves to become less powerful by following the party line, by voting the party line, by not speaking up, by uh, not being, in many cases, representatives of their constituency first and representatives of their party second. MPs do have the ability to give themselves more power by bucking the party line and speaking up more when they feel they really need to. Um, Yes, they'll face the wrath of the whip and maybe the leader, but the more it happens, the less likely each act of you know, let's call it mild defiance, will be punished. You can think of someone like Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, who, for the most part, votes the party line. But when it's an important issue, he, especially on things like animal welfare, for example, he will vote in a different way. And he hasn't really been punished all that much or sidelined all that much. Uh, if you're going to be a backbencher anyway, why not speak up a little bit? Not enough to put your party into trouble, but, you know, be fun if we had 338 individuals in the in the parliament and not um, just representatives of a party platform. In terms of what to do about it, you know, Michael Chong, the conservative MP from uh, Ontario, uh, has always been proposing different reforms. The one that I think is probably the most interesting right now, the Speaker of the House is given a list of who's going to speak from each of the parties, and he more or less goes down the list. In other parliaments in other parts of the world, the Speaker has more power to recognize MPs. And I think that would be a good step to take the power of who gets to speak in the House of Commons away from the whips, away from the parties, and give it to the Speaker. And, you know, he can do it equitably to make sure that MPs from each party get to speak and that kind of thing. But making sure that, you know, the House itself has that power rather than uh, party whips. Alison Crawford asked, what, if anything, have anti-carbon tax provinces actually done since the Supreme Court decided that the carbon tax was legal? I don't follow these kinds of things very closely, as everybody who listens to this podcast knows. I'm not always very big on policy. I'm big on elections. Uh, And that's a blind spot on my part. But uh, I did ask someone who does follow this a little bit more closely. And the simple answer is not really anything. Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Ontario, and Alberta, they are still having to apply the federal carbon tax within their jurisdictions. So that hasn't changed. Matt Ewing. Anecdotally, it seems engagement in Canadian politics is low. The Alberta Liberal Party couldn't find a leader. Ontario provincial election turnout was incredibly low. The federal conservative election race doesn't seem particularly competitive. Tell me about it. Toronto's upcoming municipal election has a record low number of candidates. And Matt struggles to come up with more than one or two names of potential leaders for the Ontario Liberals and NDP. 
as someone who's way more tuned to the political sphere than he is, in his opinion, do you get that sense? What may be contributing reasons, if so? I think it's fair to say that engagement is lower. Turnout is generally lower in elections these days. Party identification is lower in polls than it used to be. Active participation is lower. You know, it's not as many healthy constituency associations, volunteers. Uh, There might be a lot of people that'll sign up to cast a ballot in a leadership race, but where are they uh, after the votes are cast? I think there's a number of reasons for this. The places where you can use your political energy, that has been dispersed. You can go online, you can go to the streets, uh, you can go to other organizations rather than political parties. And then there is a a perception, particularly among a lot of younger Canadians, that the parties are old-fashioned, that there's better ways to get involved and to make things change. I think as well, one of the biggest issues is that politics as a career has been devalued. Now, politicians are paid very handsomely, but it isn't really great compared to what they would probably be able to make in the private sector. The best and brightest in the country um, can generally make more than an MP or an MLA or a mayor or a city councillor. It's also very hard on personal life, right? There's not a lot of privacy. You get a lot of a, you get a lot of personal attacks. Um, you know, it, it's it's rough, right? So it is a bit of a vicious circle here that is the job gets more devalued, the career gets more devalued. The quality of candidates will also just get worse, right? And if the quality of candidates get worse, there'll be less engagement. People will feel that these politicians aren't worth our time, our efforts, our votes. And that's a bit of a problem. Now, what do we do? Well, demand better from our leaders that they be better at their jobs, but also recognize that the jobs that they do are pretty important. And, you know, we shouldn't be slagging them just almost naturally, that they must all be corrupt and in it for themselves. That's not true. Some of them are, but most aren't. All right, we're going to move on to provincial politics. This uh, We're going to start with a question from BC. This is Russell Green. I'm interested in political realignments over time. In British Columbia, the three main federal parties have been locked in close races in recent elections, and the Conservatives do not dominate as they once did. Provincially, Premier Horgan is resigning, and the BC NDP has been in power for five years, yet the NDP is still in its strongest position ever. Do you sense a leftward shift among the BC electorate? Honestly, I I think it's more of a natural ebb and flow of politics. Parties rise, parties fall. Uh, The NDP is popular now. Maybe they'll win the next election, but they'll eventually get defeated, and the BC Liberals, or however they call themselves after uh, the next couple years, will return to power. And John Horgan has really run more as a centrist, or at least an NDP centrist, than a left-winger. So it's hard to say that because the BC NDP under John Horgan has done done so well, that it must be more of a a left-wing province. You know, the BC New Democrats aren't the federal New Democrats who are further to the left than John Horgan's uh, BC NDP. Uh, But the federal conservatives have struggled in British Columbia for the last couple elections, less than 35% of the vote since 2015. So something isn't working for them very well as well. That's pretty clear. But I wonder if this is more of a factor in terms of just the growing urban population, which we see elsewhere. Um, You know, those seats in the lower mainland, as every election goes by, become more important with every redistribution. You get more seats in the lower mainland, fewer seats in the BC interior. You do also see a bit of a divide between the lower mainland and the interior and the north. You know, in the past, the NDP, federally and provincially, used to be pretty competitive in the interior. They could do pretty well. Now it's a much tougher area for them. You know, the interior, the BC interior, is starting to politically look more like Alberta than the rest of British Columbia. So I think we're seeing more of that kind of regional divide. And while the Conservatives pretty easily win in the BC interior, um, it's getting into the lower mainland that is the challenge for them. I'm not sure if that's as much that the province is swinging leftward is just that the province is swinging, like a lot of other parts of the country, uh, to be more urban. Now we're going to move on to Alberta. Brian Bondi, he asks, Would Daniel Smith's proposed Sovereignty Act be constitutional if the notwithstanding clause were used? For that matter, theoretically, is the proposal more or less or equally constitutional than the old PQ tactic of preemptively using the notwithstanding clause as a blanket clause applicable to all legislation? I am not a constitutional expert. I don't even try to play one on TV. So I did ask someone who is an expert. Martin Olzinski is an associate professor at the University of Calgary Faculty of Law, and he took a shot at this one. The quick answer is that no, the notwithstanding clause 
would not make Daniel Smith's proposed Sovereignty Act constitutional. And that's because, as, as I'll explain in a moment, the notwithstanding clause only applies to specific charter rights and is used to shield whichever government invokes it from charter scrutiny of its own laws. It, it can't be used to strike or nullify the laws of another level of government. And then second, is this proposal more or less equally constitutional to the old PQ tactics of preemptively using the notwithstanding clause? Not at all. What Danielle Smith is proposing is a radical departure from anything that has been done or proposed in Canada and amounts essentially to a subversion of the rule of law. Now, so on the first point, the notwithstanding clause is found in section 33 of the Charter. The Charter is part of our Constitution. It binds both Canada as the federal government and all the provincial governments. When provinces invoke the notwithstanding clause, as Quebec has and as Ontario recently has, they're not doing it to nullify federal laws. They're doing it to protect their own laws. They are essentially admitting that their own laws, provincial laws passed pursuant to provincial powers, are not consistent with the Charter and they don't care. Or they understand that, but they want to pass them notwithstanding that fact. What are those sections? Section 2, freedom of expression, freedom of religion. Section 7 through to 14, which are the due process rights, the right to life, liberty, and security of the person, rights related to trial. Um, and then Section 15, which is our equality right. So none of these rights are relevant to the discussion that Ms. Smith is having, where she essentially is saying that she will strike down uh, or ignore or not enforce federal laws that apply throughout Canada, right? And, so, and that's related to another part of our Constitution, which is the division of powers. So in Canada, as a federal state, Section 91 of our Constitution sets out the kinds of things that the federal government can pass laws about, and Section 92 sets out the kinds of things that the provincial governments can pass laws about. So federal uh, examples, criminal law, right, is one that's clearly federal, uh, provincial property and civil rights. What Ms. Smith is basically saying is that she will decide on a go-forward basis when the federal government is encroaching into provincial matters, as opposed to the courts. Now, of course, the courts have mediated these constitutional disputes since the beginning of Confederation. Uh, they're doing it right now. There was references into the Greenhouse Gas Pollution Pricing Act. There's currently a reference on the Impact Assessment Act, or Bill C-69, as it's known. So these things are currently happening, but Ms. Smith is not happy with them. She is not satisfied with the results that are coming from the courts. And therefore, she is essentially saying, I don't care about the courts. I'm going to decide when the federal government is intruding into provincial jurisdiction. And I will decide to not enforce those laws when I make that determination alongside my, with my legislature. And so her proposal is radically different than anything that has been proposed anywhere and amounts to an abandonment of the rule of law, not just our constitution. Thanks to Martin for that answer. Alan Sieroff, he asks, with Daniel Smith probably winning the Alberta UCP race, I'm interested in people who become party leaders with little caucus support or indeed with strong caucus opposition. My sense is that they have a hard time unless they win an election. I think that's the case for every leader. You have a hard time until you win an election. Um, now, this isn't an exhaustive list, but I did find four that are recent, relatively recent. On the one hand, you have Christy Clark. You know, she didn't have a lot of caucus support when she won the BC Liberal leadership uh, back in 2011. She won the 2013 election, and you know, she kind of won the 2017 election too, even though she didn't get to form government after that. Uh, so it, it didn't really seem to hurt her too much. You can look at Alison Redford in Alberta. In the 2011 race to take over the Progressive Conservatives, Gary Marr was by far the caucus choice. Alison Redford had just one caucus supporter, but she won the leadership race. She won the 2012 election, but it didn't go well for her after that. She had to resign over a number of issues. Uh, people didn't like her anymore in the province. People didn't like her within the party. Uh, so the fact that she didn't have that caucus support to begin with probably didn't help very much. On the other hand, you can look at someone like Doug Ford. When he won the leadership in 2018 of the Ontario PCs, he had two members of provincial parliament backing him. Christine Elliott had 13. Doug Ford was not the caucus choice, but he won that leadership race. You know, things have been going pretty fine for Doug Ford. He's won two elections, and there doesn't seem to be a lot of caucus or party division. Uh, but sticking to the Ontario PCs, Patrick Brown, he only had five 
members of uh, the PC caucus supporting him when he won the Ontario PC leadership in 2015. Poor Christine Elliott, she only had 17, wasn't enough. Um, that didn't go so well. That didn't go so well for Patrick Brown. Part of it was probably his fault. Part of it was probably that people within the party didn't like him that much. So, you know, you can look at this. Christy Clark, Doug Ford got the support of the voters, and so the party was able to stick behind them. Alison Redford, uh, as soon as it started going bad, she was, a bit, she, was, she was dumped by the party. And Patrick Brown, he didn't have that caucus support, and I think that probably hurt him quite a bit when he... Uh, really tried to pivot to make the PCs more of a centrist option ahead of the 2018 election. So having caucus support uh, probably helps. It's always better to have more people liking you. All right, this is a real stumper I got from Connor Giesbrecht. He asks, it appears as if Glenn Murray has a strong chance of being elected as the mayor of Winnipeg for a second time. Given that he was an Ontario MPP, I was wondering if there's any precedent in Canadian history of someone serving an elected office, moving to another province and being elected there, and then coming back and getting elected to their first elected position again. There's a lot there. That's yeah, That was a tough one. I had to really think about this. I'm sure there are lots of examples that I, I'm not aware of. If you have any examples, let me know. The only one that I could think of was Angus L. MacDonald. He was the Premier of Nova Scotia from 1933 to 1940. He stepped down in 1940 to take over the Navy uh, during the Second World War in Mackenzie King's cabinet, and he was elected in Kingston, in Ontario, to have a seat. When the war was over, he returned to Nova Scotia and became premier again. It's not exactly the same because he took the he only took the job in Ottawa as a as a request as a duty of the war. Uh, it wasn't that he permanently moved to Ontario, ran for office there, and then decided to return to Nova Scotia. This is not exactly the same as the case with Glenn Murray, but it, it is a it is an interesting one. So if anybody does have any other examples, I'd love to hear it. Got a question from Peter Ryan about his native Saskatchewan. What pathway to a return to power do you see for the once mighty NDP? Growing up, the NDP was more of a religion in both rural and urban Saskatchewan than a political party. Today, it seems like the NDP can't come close to winning seats in rural areas and is also challenged in the suburbs of Saskatoon and Regina. If the Sask party has ever been vulnerable on paper, it is now, but the NDP can't get traction to form government. What do you think this party needs to do in order to be credible and a contender for power? Uh, For this question, I thought I'd go to Saskatchewan. Sally Hauser is the Senior Manager of Public Affairs for the Canadian Strategy Group and a former Chief of Staff for the Saskatchewan NDP. She's also regular on The Scoop, S-K-O-O-P. It's a podcast dedicated to Saskatchewan politics. It's on Apple Podcasts, and you can go to thescoop.ca. Sally? Well, the, the path to victory for the Saskatchewan NDP really does lie in that next tranche of seats, the suburban areas. You know, and that really, the, the NDP and, you know, in Saskatchewan and, and all across the country has traditionally been really focused on, on health care and education. Saskatchewan, probably more than a lot of places, uh, has trouble gaining that trust on the economic issues. Uh, I think there's a real opportunity now um, with affordability being so top of mind for everybody. Um, that's a good place for the NDP to be, to talk about those real uh, pocketbook issues uh, that are really on people's people's minds. Uh, and that's particularly helpful and, and true and useful in those those suburban areas where the NDP in Saskatchewan continues to do in elections fairly well, but just hasn't been able to get it over the line in, in a lot of those seats. Um, so having that kind of singular focus on those pocketbook issues the, is a good, um, a good entry point for the NDP to regain that kind of trust on economic issues of uh, that idea that we understand you, we understand the realities that you face, um, and the SAS party is is completely out of touch with the your day to day realities. They just don't get it. Um, with the new leader Carla Beck, uh, the Saskatchewan NDP really has that opportunity to have a bit of a reset and, and change the channel. I think you've really seen that. Uh, she's come out of the gates very hard since she became leader with a, a kind of a tour all across the province. And uh, that's that's seemingly going really well. Uh, in the rural areas, uh, you know, I, I talked about health care uh, being something that the NDP has, has really pushed and continues to push over the years. It's part of our brand. 
moment, um, but hasn't really resonated, although that's really starting to gain some traction in Saskatchewan. There are rural hospital closures uh, all across the province, emergency room closures, uh, no access to ambulances, uh, and that is really starting to gain some traction um, in, in the rural areas of Saskatchewan. So the Saskatchewan, uh, the, uh, the Saskatchewan party has not had a good summer, uh, and really typically, you know, uh, the legislature time, that's for the opposition, uh, where you get to kind of hammer on the government. And usually the, the summer is, uh, is really the time for the government to kind of go out, ribbon cut, and, and everything like that. But they've had a series of, of those kind of mishaps, or, or particularly around the kind of like, you know, the $16 orange juice. So you had the finance minister take an $8,000 flight uh, to, to North Battleford, which is only a four-hour drive. Um, and they've had just a couple of, uh, of issues that have really dogged them. Uh, so going into this uh, by-election now in Saskatoon, Miwasin, uh, which is going to be a, a tough one, but kind of a must-win for the Saskatchewan NDP, they are actually going in in a relatively good position. But uh, overall, uh, it's really focusing on the, the pocketbook issues and, and understanding uh, the people of Saskatchewan, what they're facing, and being able to convince them uh, that really the NDP is the party on your side and, and the SAS party is out of touch. Thanks so much, Sally. And uh, I would just add to what she said uh, a couple of numbers. Uh, I think the challenge for the NDP, there are 61 seats in Saskatchewan. You need 31 for a majority government. There are only 26 in Regina and Saskatoon. So if you're going to form a government in Saskatchewan, you need to win in the rural areas and the small cities. Uh, so the NDP's got to figure that out. You know, they can be pretty competitive in Regina and Saskatoon. They're going to have to win some suburban seats in those two cities as well, though. But they got to figure out the rural vote if they're going to return to power. All right, we're moving to the municipal stage now. Uh, Heather Bigelow, curious about my thoughts on strong mayor legislation in Ontario. Also wonder how mayoral powers stack up across Canada. Uh, in terms of the strong mayor legislation itself, I'm not much, uh, much of an expert on municipal politics in terms of how it's run. Uh, so I'm going to reserve judgment on that. But I found an article in Policy Options. This was written by Brian Kelsey. He's a critic of some of the municipal systems we have in Canada. But I'll read an excerpt because it does explain what the systems are like in Canada. So I'm reading now. A few Canadian city mayors have significant political authority, thanks to what we call a legislative strong mayor model. As in many European cities, this approach either gives mayors the authority to choose a cabinet that can meet confidentially, such as in Winnipeg, or it allows mayors to lead formal political parties, like in Vancouver or Montreal. In either case, formal support from a strong plurality or majority of council members empowers mayors to direct their city governments. The article goes on, Canada's constitution lists cities among provincial powers, and thanks to provincial laws, most cities are still governed with the same weak mayor model as a 19th century Upper Canada village. Mayors chair council meetings, cast one vote as if they were just another councillor, and represent the city publicly. Some big city charters anoint mayors as, quote, the chief executive officer of the city, yet without specifying any real executive powers, except in an emergency. Toronto's model is perhaps the strongest of these weak mayor systems. Mayor John Tory is not expected to chair council. City bylaws empower him to appoint council's committee chairs, and he can prioritize two key items on any council agenda. Otherwise, in the eyes of the law, Toronto's mayor is basically the 26th councillor. In Halifax's charter, the mayor presides over council, and he or she may monitor operations at City Hall. So that's the excerpt. You know, that's kind of, it's different in one city to another. In some cases, it is. You know, the mayor is one among equals. He's just the highest among the equals, but doesn't really have much more sway than that. And in other ones, like in Montreal or Vancouver, because of the party system, you have, a, you have something that's a bit more like what we see in Parliament. Um, you know, the Westminster model works pretty well in provincial and federal politics. Maybe it would work well in municipal politics. I don't know. Alison Crawford asked, is there ever the possibility that a city that is amalgamated can get de-amalgamated? Well, it has happened before, and probably most famously in Quebec. So the PQ government, they amalgamated municipalities across Quebec in 2002. Uh, you got the me these mega cities uh, that were bringing in a lot of smaller municipalities. Montreal, for example, the whole island had 28 municipalities. The amalgamation reduced it to one. When the Liberals ran in the 2003 election campaign, as was Jean Charest, who was running as the Liberal leader, they promised to put de-amalgamation to a referendum. And they won that election. So there was referendums in some cities where there was demands for de-amalgamation. 
it wasn't a 100% deamalgamation. The um, bigger city still had some powers over you know, some uh, services and that kind of thing. But there were referendums held um, really throughout the province um, in municipalities to see whether, see whether people wanted to deamalgamate. Montreal had 14 municipalities vote in favor of deamalgamation. These were primarily in the West Island. There was also some cities like Longueuil and Quebec City uh, that also had parts of a deamalgamate. So it is possible. But you do have to have the buy-in from the provincial government because they are the ones that, what do they say? Your municipalities are the creatures of the provinces. Okay, we're going to close with a couple history questions. So, you know, I wanted to save the best to last. You know how I am. Nicholas Clark, he asks, you have been covering elections for a while. However, you have not covered most elections in Canada's history, although I know you are doing that as part of the Every Election Project. Is there one election in particular you wish you could have covered as it happened? And why? It could be federal, provincial, municipal throughout the history of this country. That's a tough question. Tough question for me, obviously. Uh, you know, the elections in the 19th century were just wild. Uh, they would have been interesting to cover. There was, you know, you buy votes with booze. There was fights. There was... Uh, you know, new technologies in terms of uh, trains uh, as a campaigning kind of platform. Uh, it would be pretty cool to see a 19th century election. You know, you look at the 1917 federal election. This was Wilfrid Laurier's last election. It was a pretty ugly, divisive election over conscription. I'm not sure if it was a interesting one to cover, but it was a pretty historic one. 1921, there was the collapse of the two-party system, the rise of the progressives and the farmers. That would have been kind of interesting. 1935 in Alberta, that's what brought Bible Bill Eberhardt to power with social credit. Um, 1944 in Saskatchewan, the election of the CCF. This is the first socialist government in North America. You know, in Quebec, 1960, 1976. These were landmark elections in terms of the Quiet Revolution, in terms of um, the rise of uh, the Parti Québécois. The, those would have been ones to watch. You know, 1958 or 1968, the federal elections, these were elections uh, with John Diefenbaker in 58, with just, uh, Justin Pierre Trudeau in 1968. Elections where it seemed like there was a huge wave of enthusiasm for one party. It would have been interesting to kind of feel what that feels like, that momentum. 1993, you know, I'm old enough to remember 1993, but, um, you know, the rise of the reform, the rise of the Bloc Québécois, pretty interesting election. But for me, it has to be the 1935 federal election. I'm generally interested in the 1920s and 1930s um, when it comes to politics in Canada. And the 1935 election was a really fascinating one. So it's in the context of the Great Depression. You know, war clouds are starting to gather over Europe. There's the influence of relatively new technology like the radio, like using that as a campaign tool. That was still something that was not all that well known. Yet R.B. Bennett's government, the conservative government, was on the ropes you know, R.B. Bennett proposed a pretty much a new deal, just like Franklin Roosevelt did in the United States, which was a huge flip-flop for a conservative government. And um, the 1935 election was just the emergence of the modern multi-party system we have today. Social credit uh, starting to win seats in Western Canada, example of a more or less a party that would emerge to become a bit of a Western party, a bit of a Western grievance party. We, you know, forerunner of things like the Reform Party, the CCF. This was their first federal election. The CCF obviously becomes the NDP later on. So uh, you start to see these multi-party systems where it's not just liberals versus conservatives. You have these other parties as well. You have these regionalization of politics because some of these parties are only popular in parts of the country. Um, you had the Reconstruction Party. You don't often hear about that. H.H. Stevens, who was a conservative minister, he left the conservative party and he kind of split the vote. He only won his own riding, but uh, that was also just another dynamic. So just a lot of things going on in that election. And, you know, the 1935, the 1930s, it was the Depression, but, you know, cool fashion, cool cars, at least for me. So uh, that would probably be the one I wish I could have covered. And we're going to close on this one. Matt Ewing. What upcoming race, no matter how far in the future, do you think will be the most competitive and interesting for whoever you wish to define interesting and why? So I guess this isn't a history question. It's a future history question. Um, you know, I was thinking about this. Which, what will be the most interesting race to follow in the next little while? Uh, you know, Alberta in the spring is going to be pretty interesting. The polls are pretty close between the United Conservatives and the New Democrats. The NDP vote isn't very efficient, so they're probably going to have to do a lot better than what we're seeing in the polls. Was 2015 a fluke? Is the NDP a party that can contend for government? 
will the UCP have internal divisions under Daniel Smith that she ends up winning? That'll be a fascinating election. Uh, New Brunswick in 2024, you have you know, the Liberals and the PCs seem competitive in the polls. You have the Greens and the People's Alliance are there. What's going to happen with them? Um, one that I almost wanted to say, it's not going to be my answer, but I almost wanted to, was a future Quebec election. And so not the one that's going to happen in October, but one that'll happen next time. Because what happens over the next few years? Do the Liberals and the Parti Québécois survive? Is there going to be a new kind of electoral landscape that includes the Quebec Conservatives, maybe a, a more deeply entrenched Quebec silly there. Are we in the midst of watching a realignment in Quebec politics? So that's an interesting question to me. But I think the next election that's going to be the most interesting is the federal election. I know it's an easy answer, but the Liberals have been in power for a decade. So, you know, they're going to have to be uh, on their game if they're going to get reelected. The Conservatives are going to be under Pierre Poiliev, probably. You know, love him or hate him, he, he isn't boring when it comes to a campaign. Uh, the NDP, you know, are they going to benefit from liberal fatigue after a decade in power? Uh, or are they going to get no credit for backing up the government for the last few years? Uh, what's going to happen to the Green Party? What is their future like? What happens in Quebec if the Liberals choose a non-Quebec leader to replace uh, Justin Trudeau? If that's what happens, that he resigns. It's traditionally the case in, in, with the Liberal Party that they go from a Francophone to a, a, an Anglophone leader. Um, will the Conservatives be united? What will happen with um, the moderates? Do they end up gathering behind a new party? Does the People's Party still have a huge role in this election? You know, the regional battles in Canada are second to none. I do enjoy the regionalization of politics just in terms of it's, it's interesting. I'm not sure if it's good for Canada, but it is certainly something that's interesting to watch. Um, so the next federal election, whenever it is, I think is going to be the most interesting one in the future. So there's lots to be excited about in upcoming elections, not just federally, but provincially. Um, it's a good thing that you're listening to The Rip because you know that we're going to cover it every step of the way. Okay, that'll be it for this week's episode of the writ podcast i hope you enjoyed it i know it's a lot of me talking but try to mix it up with a few other people as well please let me know what you thought about it because i want to know if this is something i should try again you can email me at eric.grenier at the you can find me on twitter at eric grenier tw you can also reply to uh, the email that you get in your inbox if you're a subscriber to the writ and if you want to have your questions answered next time you can subscribe and support the work i'm doing at the all right, till next week, thanks for your questions and thanks for listening.